Uktoin, Akarja, it's a great honour to address Machnav 100. Professor Farrater began by raising two questions central to understanding the conflicts and settlements of 1921 to 1922. Why were so many Irish revolutionaries committed to a republic rather than some lesser form of independence? And what did they understand the republic to mean? Thinking about how the world was changing in the aftermath of the First World War provides useful insights into both questions. I want to develop three arguments here. First, that the global context is central to understanding the rhetoric, aims, and strategies of Irish Republicans during the revolution. Second, that international developments shaped the settlements imposed on Ireland in important ways. Third, that these global influences, particularly the impact of the First World War on ideas about sovereignty and empire, have contemporary relevance as we commemorate these centenaries. Easter 1916 was central to the emergence of republicanism as a popular movement. The legacy of the rebellion, as much emotional as ideological, saw the cause of the Republic unite almost every faction of advanced nationalism by 1917, when Sinn Féin adopted the Republic as its goal. Despite a long tradition of Republican thought among Irish insurrectionaries, the decision to proclaim a Republic in 1916 probably owed more to the international wartime context as well as the model provided by the United States, which five of the proclamation's seven signatories had visited. When Min Ryan asked Tom Clark and the GPO why the Rising had gone ahead under such unfavorable circumstances, Clark had told her that a rebellion was necessary to make Ireland's position felt at the peace conference so that its relation to the British Empire would strike the world. When she asked him why a republic, Clark explained, you must have something striking in order to appeal to the imagination of the world. So global events and global opinion were central to the rebels' thinking. Although it seemed quixotic to many in 1916, the Republic was an idea whose time had seemed to come by 1919, when, following the collapse of the great empires, republics rapidly became the norm across Europe. Sinn Féin, as Dermot has noted, did not outline a clear sense of what the Irish Republic might entail, but it did propose a remarkably clear strategy of how it would be achieved. The party identified four means to secure a republic in its 1918 election manifesto. Abstention from Westminster, political agitation, the establishment of an Irish parliament and a counter-state, and an appeal for recognition to the Paris Peace Conference. Sinn Féin's appeal to a peace conference that had declared its intention to organise, quote, the future of the nations of the world on the principle of government by consent of the governed was astute. Republicans and imperialists alike understood the potentially incendiary implications of President Wilson's 14-point speech, which seemed to herald a new world order based on national self-determination and the rule of international law rather than military might. Towards the end of the First World War, Britain and France had even felt it necessary to affirm, albeit insincerely, that governments should derive, quote, their authority from the initiative and free choice of the indigenous population. In demanding a republic, Irish revolutionaries believed history was on their side. In the weeks prior to the 1918 general election, republics had been proclaimed in Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Sinn Féin's election leaflets highlighted how its demands had been achieved by other peoples. Poland free, an object lesson for Ireland, 
Poland is now Sinn Féin. Declaring independence, as Republicans did when the Doyle first met in January 1919, was one thing. Achieving it, another. Whereas the Irish party's efforts to win self-government had centred on Westminster, Irish Republicans saw international recognition as the means to achieve independence. The Irish Declaration of Independence, intended for a global as much as an Irish audience, demanded the recognition and support of every free nation in the world. The Doyle's message to the free nations of the world called upon every free nation to support the Irish Republic by recognising Ireland's national status and her rights to its vindication at the Peace Congress. In retrospect, what is striking about early 1919, the period we now remember as the start of the War of Independence, was the extent to which propaganda and politics, rather than violence, were central to Republican strategy. For many in Sinn Féin, the shootings at Solohead Beg on the same day that the Doyle first met came as an unwelcome distraction from the performance orchestrated at the Mansion House before an audience of international press correspondents. But in practical, as opposed to propaganda terms, the peace conference strategy was clearly flawed. The big four powers that determined its outcome were never likely to side against one of their own with a movement that had identified with its gallant German allies in 1916. Self-determination, moreover, was intended for the oppressed nations of the defeated empires rather than those of its victors. So rather than the Poles or the Czechs, the position of the Irish was in some ways more analogous to the anti-colonial nationalists who were similarly excluded from the peace conference. With their hopes initially raised and then dashed by what Arez Manela has described as the Wilsonian moment, Indian and Egyptian revolutionaries, the countries with which Ireland was most frequently compared abroad, embarked on similar campaigns. They rejected offers of limited self-government, protested at home and abroad, and drew on Wilsonian rhetoric to articulate long-standing grievances in drawn-out campaigns that eventually led to partial independence. And surveying Irish efforts within this context, what is perhaps most striking is the extent to which similar strategies were used by nationalist revolutionaries across the world. For example, it was not only the Irish, but also the Koreans who declared independence in 1919, established a Republican government, appealed to the peace conference, sent revolutionary diplomats to Washington, mobilized diasporic support, issued revolutionary bonds in the US and organized presidential tours across America. What most marked out the Irish among these other movements was the relative size and influence of its diaspora, a product of the post-famine migration that had scattered almost two million people across the globe, but most conveniently had been sent concentrated in the new global superpower that was the US. Consequently, the Irish were perhaps the best connected and most influential of the international revolutionary movements, who had been disappointed by the failure to secure recognition at Paris. Not for nothing did President Wilson blame the Irish for wrecking his presidency when he failed to win domestic political support for membership of the League of Nations. So how did these international factors shape the settlements that brought the Irish conflict to an end? I would argue that the way we remember and commemorate the independence struggle 
places more emphasis than is warranted on the domestic and the military dimensions of a campaign that prioritised political struggle, revolutionary diplomacy and international propaganda. As Michael Collins advised the Doyle's representative in Rome, real progress is much more to be estimated by what is thought abroad than by what is thought at home. The Commander-in-Chief in Ireland, General Neville McCready, similarly acknowledged that this propaganda business is the strongest weapon Sinn Féin has. Even military events within Ireland, such as the sacking of Cork by the Black and Tans, were as significant for their international consequences as their impact at home. British actions in Ireland provoked dismay and outrage, including within England, whilst international press coverage devastated Britain's global reputation. The mobilisation of the Irish diaspora ensured that events at home resonated across the world, ensuring that the Irish question transcended narrow ethnic politics. One striking example of this was the impact of the hunger strike by Terence McSweeney, who became a global icon whose cause prompted international protests and strikes involving anti-imperial, anti-colonial, socialist, suffrage and trade union movements. Despite Irish-American racism and the tendency of some Irish Republicans to base their claim to self-government in part on their whiteness, such displays of solidarity included prominent black rights activists such as W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey, as has been explored recently by scholars such as Brian Hanley, David Brundage and Miriam Nyan Gray. Imperialists, like Republicans, also believed that the Irish question was rooted in broader struggles. Sir Henry Wilson, chief of the Imperial General Staff, linked the challenge from Irish Republicans with labour unrest across Britain, Bolshevism and anti-colonial agitation across the empire. Britain, he noted in his diary, is fighting New York and Cairo and Calcutta and Moscow, who are only using Ireland as a tool and lever against England, and nothing but determined shooting on our part is any use. Imagined or real, these connections shaped British decision-making as to how the Irish war should be conducted and concluded with the implications for imperial rule in Egypt and India frequently cited by figures such as Wilson, who declared, if we lose Ireland, we have lost the empire. For many British politicians, as Maurice Walsh has noted, among the most discomforting feature of events in Ireland was that tactics of imperial repression, usually concealed, were now being documented and described in the daily press. The condemnation of reprisals by conservative as well as liberal British newspapers prompted concerns about the morality and the efficacy of David Lloyd George's Irish policy, undermining his government's resolve to sustain its counter-insurrectionary campaign in Ireland despite increasing military success in the final months of the conflict. An awareness that it was losing the propaganda war not least in America, helps to explain the British government's humiliating decision to negotiate with the leaders of a movement it had only recently condemned as a murder gang. The settlements that followed were similarly shaped by international pressures and imperial calculations. The fateful decision to devolve power to a unionist-controlled northern state, 
rather than merely exclude Ulster from an Irish settlement, which had been the plan before the First World War, resulted in part from a desire to be seen to conform to the new gospel of self-determination. Like the treaty settlement to follow, partition was shaped by concerns about other troublesome parts of the empire, such as Palestine and Egypt, where a new terminology of mandates and dominions was coined to enable nationalist aspirations for independence to be contained within reconfigured imperial frameworks. And wider shifts in liberal political thought, as Ari Dubnoff has observed, shaped the appeal of partition as a means for resolving national differences, crucially within imperial structures. The unmixing of peoples through the creation of national self-governing states was regarded positively by the international community, as was demonstrated by the 1923 Treaty of Lausanne, where the redrawing of borders was accompanied by mass population transfers. Irish partition, or more specifically, the perceived success of Irish partition, influenced Britain's partition plans in Palestine and later in India. And it was only after the Second World War that it was widely conceded that partition was, in fact, a violent process that intensified rather than resolved conflict over identities and the mistreatment of minorities within these newly created partition states. The Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 was similarly shaped by international factors and imperial considerations. Pressure from the US and British Empire contributed to London's decision to concede an Irish dominion, a form of statehood that was defined in the treaty's first article agreement as having the same constitutional status as Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. As Dermot has noted, Imperial figures such as the South African statesman Jan Smuts, through their influence on the king, helped to facilitate the treaty settlement. And through the leverage provided by its diaspora, Irish Republicans had influenced Britain's Irish policy and that settlement. Explaining to British MPs the necessity for the unpopular concession of Dominion status to Ireland, Winston Churchill noted how Britain's, quote, great interests in India and in Egypt, the Dominions and the United States had been damaged by the loud, insistent outcry raised by the Irish race all over the world. In his influential, influential Caird Hall speech, advocating a treaty that extended his government to the utmost limit possible, Churchill argued that it would not only be a blessing in itself inestimable, but with it would be removed the greatest obstacle which has ever existed to Anglo-American unity. Far across the Atlantic Ocean, we should reap a harvest sown in the Emerald Isle. As Heather Jones has observed, both the King's speech at the opening of the Northern Irish Parliament and the British debates on the Irish Treaty demonstrate the shift in British imperial ideas that was occurring not just in, but through Ireland. As George V noted during his visit to open the Belfast Parliament, everything which touches Ireland finds an echo in the remotest parts of the empire. So the Irish were negotiating self-government at a time of rapid transition for the British empire. 
For many Irish revolutionaries, political developments since Easter 1916 had made the notion of an oath of allegiance to a British monarch unthinkable because a particular form of state, the Republic, had become synonymous with independence. But at the same time, for many British politicians, the role of the monarch as the crucial element that would bind together the community of nations transitioning from an empire ruled by London to a less hierarchical commonwealth of nations, a term whose first legal use occurs in the Anglo-Irish Treaty, was too important to allow for compromise on an oath to the king. So these transnational developments in thought and politics helped to explain the difficulty of fashioning a treaty settlement acceptable to both Irish Republicans and British imperialists, and consequently the drift to civil war that ensued. Ultimately, Britain's insistence on the role of the monarch and empire in the treaty proved a Pyrrhic victory, delegitimising in the eyes of many Irish nationalists the Irish Free State that was established in 1922. Fifteen years later, by 1937, both treaty and free state had been scrapped. Ironically, this was achieved because of the success with which the Irish Free State worked with other so-called restless dominions to assert its legislative independence. And of course, there's a tragic dimension to these developments, given that the treaty debate centred on whether that settlement would forever lock Ireland into imperial subjugation or permit a peaceful evolution to full independence. What relevance does Ireland's global revolution have for commemoration? Exploring the Irish conflict beyond the island emphasises the importance of political ideas in shaping the revolution, something that's often less evident from historical and commemorative focus on the domestic and in particular on the military dimensions of the War of Independence. It reminds us how the Irish question, for a brief period, galvanised international attention, symbolising as it did broader transformations as imperial and colonial world orders slowly gave ground to more democratic and egalitarian forms of statehood. Finally, consideration of the importance of ideas such as self-determination and empire should complicate commemoration, given that the legacy of these conflicts in the form of a partitioned island with a contested border continues to shape our present rather than constituting a past that can be safely consigned to history. Underlying the commemorative strategy of the Irish state is the idea of the decade of centenaries as marking a tragic period of shared history shaped by people from multiple identities and traditions requiring egalitarian remembrance. Although well-meaning, commemorations that prioritise present-day reconciliation over interrogation of the ideas and agency that shaped the struggles and enmities of the revolutionary era may end up contributing little to either reconciliation or historical understanding. Thank you. <laughs>